All hail, Macbeth. Hail to thee, Thane of Glams. All hail, Macbeth. Hail to thee, Thane of Cordell. All hail, Macbeth. Thou shalt be king hereafter. In Macbeth, the play opens, well, it's Act 1, Scene 3, but close enough, uh, with uh, three supernatural creatures, three witches, telling Macbeth that his destiny is to be the king. And his knowledge of that, his understanding of that, that came through that supernatural voice speaking to him, is what changes his behavior and drives his attitudes throughout the entire drama. And this kind of thing can be found all over literature. So it happens in Hamlet, right? Hamlet, you may know, um, his father is killed, but he doesn't know who killed him until the ghost of his father appears to him and tells him who it was and tells him to take revenge. And that drives the whole of that play. It happens, uh, uh, it, it happens elsewhere as well. And it happens in positive ways as well as negative ways. So I've given you some quite dark examples, but there are some positive examples as well. Like in Greek tragedy, where the mechanism of the deus ex machina, the, the gods intervene in the mess of human life. And only once they tell humans how to live, they set a new pattern of living, can people then move forward from the tragedy that they've experienced. Uh, and all of these works of literature reflect something that I think we know to be true, if we think about it, which is that the direction of your life, great changes in your life, great changes in personality, uh, are almost invariably the result of some outside force that sets a destination for you and reveals to you how to live. And we see this even in modern thinking, in case you think I'm picking some ancient examples, because um, the first three steps of Alcoholics Anonymous, which is a very um, important and successful program, uh, involve accepting that we cannot rule over ourselves and that we need a higher power to guide us and change us. Now, as Christians, we believe that this kind of intervention of a higher power is available to us at all times, wherever we are, through the medium of prayer. And today we are looking at a prayer that Paul prays for the Ephesian Christians that has exactly the kind of life-changing potential, the kind of destiny-altering potential of the supernatural interventions that I've described to you from literature. He is praying that the Ephesians would have their eyes opened to their destiny, and that has profound implications for how they live in the present. So, let's look down at the prayer that Paul prays and see what he has to say for us. The prayer opens, for this reason, or the passage opens, for this reason, and then he goes on to tell us what he's going to pray. So before we even get anywhere, we need to examine the question, what is the reason? For what reason? Why is he going to pray this prayer? So to answer that, we need to go back a bit. Um, we need to go back to start at verse 3. Um, and there's quite a lot in here, so uh, I'm just going to pick through it and draw out a few things that I think it would be helpful to see. Um, here's some of Paul's motivation for praying this prayer. Verse 3, Lord Jesus Christ, who blessed us with every spiritual blessing. Verse 4, he chose us. Verse 5, he predestined us. Verse 6, grace, which he has freely given us. Verse 7, riches of God's grace, 
verse 8, that he lavishes on us. Verse 10, we'll, we, will, we will have this when the times reach their fulfillment. Verse 11, we were also chosen having been predestined. Verse 13, you were also included and you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit. Verse 14, this guarantees our inheritance. Now, when reading these verses, there are a couple of dangers. First, there's the kind of anesthetic of familiarity that numbs us to what Paul is saying here, because there's a lot going on. Um, it's, some of the claims are extraordinary or even outlandish, but because we've read something like a New Testament epistle many times, we can slightly gloss over it. The other danger is that because there's so much going on in these verses that we just get a little bit overwhelmed. But if we avoid those dangers and concentrate on what Paul has actually said, we see a number of remarkable statements and claims that he makes. Here's three of them. First, the addressees of the letter, the Ephesian Christians, and by extension, you and me, have been chosen, predestined, and marked by God. God, the all-knowing and all-seeing, has known you and seen you since before the world was made. Second thing, God has blessed you with every spiritual blessing by the riches of his grace that he lavishes on you. So an extraordinary statement of generosity. And third, God has marked you with a seal and guarantees your inheritance, which you will receive at the end of time. So you have there three bold metaphysical pronouncements about what God's done in the past by knowing you and charting out your life then what he's done in your life by blessing you lavishly, giving you generously, and then what he will do in the future, bring you at the end of your days to join him and all the saints at that great heavenly feast. Now, is that, I ask, how you begin your prayers or what motivates you to pray? Do you reflect on how we got here, how the path that led you to this point has been laid out for you by God? Or what providence means that you're here and not somewhere else? Do you think how remarkable and astonishing it is that we can have forgiveness for everything that we've done and so have a relationship with God, but also have forgiveness with each other? We can embrace one another. Do you turn over in your heart what it means to be secure in your future, to be fully assured that it is well with your soul, as we sang earlier? Not every prayer can start like that, of course, but I think some can. And imagine the transformation in motivation for your prayer that it would be if, like Paul, we considered those things and were motivated by those things before we even started praying. I mean, would it not motivate you to pray if you really believe and know that God has always cared for you and always known you and always seen you? Would it not give your, pr your prayers passion and honesty to dwell on what it really means to be a Christian and to have the privilege of prayer? And would it perhaps not change the content of your prayers to reflect again each time on the awesome, majestic, divine nature of God? For me, I know it certainly would. Uh, often I'm very concerned in my prayers for, um, for small things in my personal life, uh, physical safety or luck or the weather or things like that. And those are not bad things to pray for. I, I believe that God cares about those things. And I also believe that even if I pray about things that are 
not really very selfless, should we say, that as Paul emphasizes, God is a God of grace and meets me in my weakness, meets me in my failure and responds in generosity and love. So he, he can and does redeem even quite selfish prayers. But I also think that reading this uh, makes me reflect on how if you do get hung up, or I get hung up on the minutiae in my prayers, that sometimes prayer can become quite dry and quite soulless, maybe a bit of a shopping list. Uh, I suspect that if I spent a few minutes reflecting before each prayer, or each time of prayer, on eternity, both past and future, I suspect I would pray more, I suspect I would enjoy it more, and I think I would probably pray less about the weather. So that's a little review of why Paul prays, what the reason is he gives for praying. Now let's see what he prays for. So uh, there are two parts to this. And the first part is just, it starts at verse 16. I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. Now, before we get anywhere else, I think that is pretty arresting. Because I've just been suggesting to you that a powerful motivation for me to pray is the way that God has planned out my life, the way that he has overflowed in generosity to me and has adopted me, and that motivates me. But now Paul's response, he knows that God has blessed him, has laid out his life, but his response is to give thanks not for himself or what God has done for him, but to give thanks for other people. And I think there's something really wonderful about that. Uh, we all know that uh, most news is bad news in the newspaper. Uh, the BBC website has to have a special section that it cordons off for good news stories. They're kept away from the real news. Uh, there are very few well-known public figures who make a name for uh, saying that things are great all the time. The, the best one that I could come up with when thinking about this was Hans Rosling, who's sadly died now, but he was a wonderful Swedish academic who had lots of interesting things to say about washing machines. Um, He's, you can still see his videos on YouTube, and they're wonderful. Uh, but Paul is not like uh, the editor of news website. Paul loves a good news story. Paul loves to see what God has done in other people's lives, and he loves to rejoice in the blessing of God to others. And I think this points to what I think is one of the special features of prayer, which is that it connects you to something outside yourself, we know this from human experience in a kind of good and powerful conversation. So imagine you're having a discussion with somebody that you really love and that you know really loves you. It could be uh, you know, your, your, your partner, the first date, you remember it, the candlelit dinner. It could be just a walk in the park with a best friend or maybe just a quick phone call with a colleague at work. But there's somebody who really encourages you and, and really makes you feel good about your work, really motivated. Um, those kinds of conversations, I think, have an amazing ability to cause you to forget yourself and to be present in that conversation and to think about the other person and just want to, want to relate. And I think prayer can be a little bit like that because when we turn our eyes upwards to the Lord, we can escape, or at least it helps us to escape, the illusion that we are sovereign, separate, self-sustaining individuals. And we can start to live out more of the truth that, yes, we're precious creatures of God, each one of us individually, but we don't live alone. We're all dependent on God, either directly or through each other. 
And speaking for myself, I can say that when I grasp that properly, or begin to grasp that properly, the kind of spiky, frosty outer coating that modernity bolts onto you starts to kind of melt away, and I can start to rejoice truly in God's blessing to others. We explored earlier this year in our sermon series about how the church is a family. And if we are all family, then a blessing to one of us is a blessing to all of us. And so we can rejoice in it. So pausing there on this first part of what Paul prays for, I ask again, is this, is this how you pray? Do you rejoice and give thanks to others? Oh, oh sorry, for others. Give thanks to God for his blessings to others. I, um, I don't, actually, generally do that very much. Uh, but I tried it when writing this sermon, and I think I can recommend it, because I think there's something really special that happens when you rejoice in blessings given to others. It's exciting, because you look for ways in which the Lord has done great work in other people's lives, and you start to find things to be thankful for everywhere, and your heart starts to fill with gratitude, and then that overflows in acts of service to other people, and other people then feel that blessing, their hearts to f- start to fill up with gratitude, and so on and so forth, and the grace of God goes out in the world, even through us as flawed, cracked vessels. Okay, so you'll notice that I haven't actually got very far through the paragraph yet. Um, so I'm going to get a little bit faster now. We've had the little, we've had the entree, and now we're going to have the plat principal of what Paul prays for. Okay, and that's starting at verse 17. I'll read these three verses. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation, so that you may know Him better. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened, in order that you may know the hope to which He has called you, the riches of His glorious inheritance in His holy people and his incomparably great power for us who believe. So as I said to Mark earlier, this is, this is the key uh, element of what Paul prays for the Ephesian Christians. Uh, when you first read this, you might think it's a little bit puzzling, and I thought it was a bit puzzling, um, it, because we tend to think of the receiving of the Spirit or the receiving of a revelation or having our eyes enlightened. We think about those things in terms of conversion, they're images of conversion, right? So in Mark 8, you have uh, Jesus healing the blind man. And in Acts 9, we have the scales falling from, uh, from Paul's eyes. So this kind of image of opening up the eyes is an image of becoming a Christian. In this prayer, though, Paul is using that image about people in Ephesus who are already Christians. They've already received the Holy Spirit. Uh, They've already, in some sense, had their eyes opened. Uh, So, uh, they've been blessed with every spiritual gift. So, Paul obviously doesn't see conversion or beginning uh, uh, as a Christian as the end of the process. There's more wisdom, more revelation, more enlightenment to be gained. And just on that, that's really helpful, isn't it? That's a really helpful corrective to a tendency that we can have in some um, parts of the church, which is to reduce really difficult problems to simple explanations. You know, I think Paul would want to say that it's okay not to understand some hard things. It's okay, for example, not to understand why God has mercy on us or what it means to be good or what heaven is. 
Th th these are profound things, and we're limited beings. Our power to perceive the truth, yes, is astonishing and potent, but it is limited. And there, there are things that we know to be extremely important, uh, uh, and we can have some idea of them, but we could spend a lifetime exploring them without really getting our arms all the way around them. And these aren't just religious concepts, by the way. They're things like uh, beauty or fairness or mathematics. These are all things where we can have a little entry into them and begin to understand them. But a lifetime of study will still not get us anywhere near uh, a, a complete understanding of them. So if you apply that then to... Uh, the attributes of God, who is the entity that created and sustains the earth, that principle must apply even more so. All Christians say with justification that they know God and his grace, but obviously none of us really knows the true expanse of it. So now returning to the, the, the content of the prayer itself, Paul is asking that the Ephesian Christians would have wisdom and understanding, not about anything and everything in general, Rather, he's specific. So he prays that the Ephesian Christians would have, and you can you, you look back if you want, we read it earlier, wisdom and understanding about the hope that they have in Christ, that's number one, the riches of the glorious inheritance, that's number two, and God's great power, that's number three. So what, what, what can we say about those three things? Well, starting with hope. That's obviously... Uh, looking forward to the future. Paul wants the Ephesian Christians to know more and more about the hope, the expectation they have about what will happen to them. That is, that it is well with their souls. Uh, do you think that that's something that's very hard to get your head around? Uh, or at least hard to get your heart around, if that, if that makes sense? Uh, when you're under attack, when your relationships are breaking apart, when you're in pain, when your loved ones are ill... I think it's very, very hard to really believe that it's well with your soul and that you have hope. In fact, I might go so far as to say that it's almost impossible. So how, how, how do you do it? Uh, Paul's answer is that he prays. Because divine intervention is needed, a work of the Holy Spirit, a transformation of the person through the intervention of a higher power. So that was the hope. Second, Paul wants the Ephesian Christians to know more and more about the inheritance. Now here's a point in the text that I missed until someone pointed out to me. Remember earlier we talked about the inheritance and it was the inheritance that the Ephesians had that they could look forward to. Now the inheritance here is actually not the inheritance of the Ephesians. But if you look down, verse 18, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people. So we're not talking here about what the Ephesians will inherit. We're talking about what God will inherit. This is Paul flipping the perspective. Okay, So the hope is looking at the future from where the Ephesians are. And then the description of God's inheritance is looking at the future from God's perspective. Now, this is quite a remarkable thing to say, I think, that you, we, are an inheritance for God, as if he would need an inheritance or want an inheritance. It's quite a strange concept, and I think there's probably a lot that can be said on it, but just 
at least one thing I'll, I'll say now, which is what an amazing statement of how valuable and precious and loved we all are. And then the third thing, Paul wants the Ephesian Christians to know more and more about God's power. That is to say, his power to bring the Ephesians' hope to fulfillment and to secure his inheritance to himself. Now, why does Paul pray for these things in particular? It it may have to do with the specific context in which the Ephesians uh, found themselves. And on that, two ideas. First idea... We know from Acts 19 that that there was a riot in Ephesus triggered essentially by concerns about Christians causing social and economic change uh, through their teachings. Uh, So these are people, these Ephesian Christians, these are people who don't fit in because of their beliefs. Uh, They're a minority in their society and they're challenging norms in the Greek world about good ethical behavior. So they needed or would have greatly benefited from reassurance that they were on the right track, that God held them safely and securely. Second idea. Ephesus, you may know, is the site of the Temple of Artemis. And the Temple of Artemis is one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. And in fact, one of the descriptions uh, puts it as being the best of the seven. It's the number one wonder of the ancient world. It's an extremely famous city with a very famous landmark, lots of wealth, lots of multiculturalism and power and uh, interesting architecture, uh, everything that you'd expect from a really successful city. Uh, The riots that we read about in Acts 19 involves the people chanting, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And I think in a really successful city like that, they probably mean that in more than one sense. They might mean it in a religious sense. So Artemis is the true god or something like this, or Artemis is very powerful and we're on her side. But they might also mean it in a kind of cultural, political sense, i.e., we're doing really well. Ephesus is doing really well. So we've probably got it right. And so again, for this reason, I suggest that the Ephesian Christians needed or would really have benefited from some reassurance that they were on the right side of history, that they had the right idea. Both of those things, I think could be said about people living in a place like London today. I think we can benefit from reassurance that even in the face of a big, powerful, successful culture, which has built this city and all the wonderful things in it, uh, we are doing something good, something right, and that we can have confidence in our future where we are going. And Paul's letter to the Ephesians teaches us that reassurance can come through prayer and through earnestly seeking to understand that whatever happens today, we have bright hope for tomorrow, that God treasures us, and that he has the power to bring us safely home. And so one last time then, I I ask whether your prayers ever sound like that. Again, I confess, mine don't, at least not normally. Uh, They do in church, perhaps, um, or maybe when when praying with a group, when one is are very aware of how a prayer can be a kind of ministry to other people, uh, but maybe not when I'm by myself. But I did try it when preparing uh, for this sermon, and I I think it can make a momentous difference. I commend it to you. Praying in the light of eternity 
changes perspective. It changes uh, the highs and the lows of your day. The highs, you might think it would sort of bring you, bring you down a peg or two, uh, and it does to, to an extent, but it also really enriches the highs because it means that your highs are not just things that you experience, but your highs are set within the context of an amazing narrative. You're part of a family that is blessed by that blessing that comes to you. You're part of uh, God's people, and, he's, and he's, he, he delights to lavish his grace upon you. So those highs are, in a sense, more wholesome and more real. And of course the lows uh, are, are softened uh, because when we have inconvenience, suffering, grief, or even evil in the day, um, it, it is a great comfort to know that the long-term destination of your soul is your father's house where there are many rooms and where Jesus has gone to prepare a place for you. So I can only imagine what praying like that over a lifetime would do to a person. So before we finish, um, let's just return to the last part of our passage, um, which uh, it starts at verse uh, 19, partway through. That power, and that's the power that we've just been talking about, is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. Now, it's not obvious to me whether these verses are part of the actual prayer that Paul prays, or if he's finished the prayer and now he's laying out for the Ephesians some of the most notable displays of God's power. Uh, that is the, the power that he's just prayed they would have come to understand more and more. Uh, but I don't think it really matters, because either way, this acts as another motivation to pray, either inside the prayer itself or outside. Paul is saying that as his prayer is answered, and the Ephesians come to see more and more of the power of God, they will see more and more of the power that raised Jesus from the dead, caused him to ascend to heaven, and gave him ultimate authority over all other authorities. Now, that's quite some power. I'm sure you'll agree. But the more startling point is that the power caused Jesus to become head over everything for the church. See that at the end of verse 22. So as we come to understand more and more of God's power, we will understand more and more of how he uses that power for us to ransom and restore us, to heal, to guide, and to lead us. And the road that took Jesus there was the way of suffering, from the place where he was condemned to the place where he hung on the cross for us. And in that moment of powerlessness, of death and defeat, the power of God changed my life and yours, and hope was born. I ask, what greater mystery could there be to ponder, and what greater reason for prayer could we have?